Well, thank you very much, Dean Garland, and thank you very much, uh, Truett Seminary, for having me. I especially want to thank Todd Still and the uh, committee that has brought me here today, but the seminary at large, I'm very, very thankful to be here today. I'm going to be sharing a paper on uh, Bard and Baptists. Um, in it, I will be including a number of uh, lengthy quotations. Most of them are traditional uh, translations, so they do not always have inclusive language. That's something to keep in mind uh, as I read through this. Um, but I'm going to go right into the lecture because I found out this is your last day of class. And uh, if that is the case, or close to the last day of class, perhaps Monday is, um, I know that you have a lot to do as well. Feel free to get up, walk around, and uh, study as appropriate. <laughs> so we begin. My lecture today is entitled, Bart and Baptists. Such a lecture has an alliterative ring and is vague enough, perhaps, to stir up curiosity as to what I am going to be addressing. It also allows the lecturer the greatest possible freedom to take the topic in any direction he or she wants. So it serves a useful double purpose. First, just so there is no confusion, the Bart in question is Karl Bart, the famous 20th century theologian. Since this is a seminary setting, I assume you all guessed as much, though Bart at times was not so easily recognized. When Bart was alive, he usually took the streetcar to the University of Basel where he taught. One day a tourist sat down next to him and in their polite conversation mentioned that Basel was the city where the famous Karl Barth lived. Do you know him? The tourist asked Barth. Know him, Barth retorted. I shave him every morning. <laughs> the tourist went home with the distinct bragging rights that he had met Karl Barth's brother, a uh, barber, excuse me, barber. With the current Barth Renaissance in America, perhaps fewer will make such mistakes of identification, and I will speak more of this Renaissance later. Now for the other side of the title. Since this is George W. Truett Theological Seminary, I assume I do not have to identify who Baptists are, though determining Baptist identity is perhaps a little more elusive than we may sometimes like to admit, and I say that as a lifelong Baptist. Such a juxtaposition of a famous 20th century theologian with a particular church tradition could of course be taken in a number of directions. Let me begin by setting aside what I will not be examining today. First, I will not be addressing the history of the reception of Barth's theology by Baptists in general or Baptist theologians in particular, whether in North America or elsewhere. This could be a story unto itself, for since Barth's time, his influence can be seen not only upon those who embraced or at least appreciated, if critically appreciated, his thought, but also upon those who spent significant time and energy in refuting it and rejecting it. In the first group, we might mention a range of thinkers such as Bernard Ram, George Eldon Ladd, David Mueller, and in their own way, Walter Connor and Dale Moody, as well as more recent persons such as James William McClendon Jr., Elizabeth Barnes, and Stephen Harmon. In the second group are those much more critical of Barth's entire project, perhaps most preeminently Carl F.H. Henry, and more recently Albert Moeller. While the history of Barth's reception among Baptist theologians might warrant its own study, it must be said that the diversity of such thinkers and their varied evaluations of Bart would undoubtedly make for quite a fragmented story. And I don't believe that what might be discovered in Bart for benefit to Baptist theology today is best grasped by such a study, which leads me to the next topic to which I will devote little time. Most interest in Bart's theology on the side of Baptists 
has revolved around Barth's rejection of infant baptism and his embrace of believer's baptism. In a short monograph of 1943, as well as in a more developed piece comprising the final and unfinished fragment of the church dogmatics, Barth, as a reform thinker, put forward an argument against the practice of baptism and espoused and defended the practice of believer's baptism. Unsurprisingly, Baptist interest in Bart has largely focused on this aspect of his theology, but I am not sure that this has always been beneficial for two reasons. First, Bart's theology of baptism was developed only within the context of a much larger theological framework. And any attempt to pluck his writings on baptism, and especially his final fragment, out of this framework can lead to a partial or even distorted view of his doctrine. As I would argue, it is important that Bart be read with an eye following along the development of his thought, both before and within the church dogmatics. For Bart's theology is best understood in light of this development. Bart, I would argue, must be read according to the practice of historical theology. Moreover, the doctrines Bart discusses within the church dogmatics themselves are best understood in light of other doctrines so that Bart must also be read as a constructive or systematic theologian. For when we do not examine each doctrine in light of the other, we open ourselves to the risk of theological distortions, both benign and those more costly. The first, more benign distortion that comes from a singular and isolated focus upon the doctrine of baptism is that it keeps us from seeing that Bart's theology should be of interest to Baptists for many more reasons than the question of baptism, if only because Bart's doctrine of baptism is placed itself in a larger matrix of theological thought that Baptists might find quite amenable. Let me illustrate by providing a number of strands within the rich tapestry of his thought that are akin to free church thinking. While his doctrine of baptism might be the most famous of these strands, there are in fact a number of others. His understanding of baptism itself is placed within a larger framework of an ethics of discipleship, a word near and dear to Baptists. Bart developed a rich description of discipleship in the latter part volumes of the Church Dogmatics, but already in the first volume, Bart could write that the goal and purpose of Christ's action is such that, quote, out of man's life there should come a repetition, an analogy, a parallel to his own being, that he should be conformable to Christ, unquote. Bart's conception of discipleship, which he distinguished from imitation, is closely tied to his rich notion of correspondence that can be traced throughout the church dogmatics. This understanding of correspondence, as it finds its place in Barth's discussion of discipleship, is itself a part of what might be called Barth's rich ecclesial and moral ontology, in which, as I have said elsewhere, God's free call is echoed in humanity's free response, a response that does not deny the sociality of Christian faith, but that recognizes the constituency of the people of God as comprised of confession rather than biology. Bart's descriptions of baptism and discipleship are themselves found in a yet larger context of ecclesiology. And here, too, we find discoveries that may pique Baptist interest. Bart's understanding of the church, formally explicated in the final volumes of the church dogmatics, but intimated and presupposed throughout, is one that holds the local gathering of believers as the primary site of God's activity, witnessed in Bart's proclivity to use the words community, Gemeinschaft, or congregation, Gemeinde, in reference to the church. 
As Barth could state in his post-war lectures in Bonn in reference to the church and in a way entirely consonant with the rest of the corpus of his writings, quote, when I say congregation, I am thinking primarily of the concrete form of the congregation in a particular place, unquote. This concrete ecclesial identity is coupled with other ecclesial strands, including Barth's rejection of strong distinctions between what some traditions refer to as clergy and laity, a rejection of overly hierarchical forms of church order, and an embrace of the Reformation principle of the priesthood of all believers in practice and not only in principle, so much so that Barth charges that not only pastors but all baptized Christians are responsible for the tasks of the church, including that of serious theological reflection. There can be no hard demarcation beyond that of function between pastors and ordinary church members. For the community is not divided by this ordering into an active part and a passive, a teaching church and a listening, Christians who have office and those who have not. Bart thereby can sharply write, quote, The statement, I am a mere layman and not a theologian, is evidence not of humility, but of indolence, unquote. The church is a place for instruction in which every individual member need participate as a theologian among theologians a witness among witnesses, a member among members. Such strands are themselves then enjoined to Bart's later appreciation for congregationalism, evident in his address to the Amsterdam Assembly of the World Council of Churches in 1948. Moreover, Bart's understanding of the church's identity was intricately tied to its activity of mission. And Bart stated that he discovered this integral connection not in the magisterial reformers, but in the free churches and among the pietists. This identity found in mission is woven with an exemplary understanding of the church in relation to the world and its political orders, discussed in detail and depth in his dogmatics, but which Bart summarized in his response to a question pertaining to their relation at a press conference in New York City in 1962 with a Baptist motto, a free church in a free state. Though I do not have time to discuss these strands further, make no mistake, they are deeply enmeshed one with the other and cannot be separated without misunderstanding their place in Barth's theology. Now, if the first distortion is then one where the riches of Barth's theology for Baptist life are overlooked due to a narrow and myopic vision upon a single narrow doctrinal thread, the second more serious distortion occurs when we not only take Barth's doctrines out of their historical and theological context, but mind Barth's theology of baptism simply to undergird a settled argument on a single doctrinal or ethical topic. For whenever we mine theology, any theology, simply to underwrite our own convictions rather than allow them to be challenged and to do so in tandem with a focus upon one doctrine rather than upon the whole scope of theological topics, we run the risk not only of misreading Bart, but more seriously of misshaping the doctrine under consideration due to our investing it with our own ideological and political uh, polemical baggage. If Bart can aid Baptists, part of that aid is in his warning that no theological tradition can truly thrive if tempted to build an entire edifice upon a selectively chosen and narrowly defined range of theological topics that serve a predominantly apologetic or polemical rather than constructive purpose. While all of the themes I've mentioned in Bart display an affinity to Baptist thinking so far, and while all are worthy of further exploration, these themes are not what I want to place at the heart of this lecture. What I want to focus on 
is not these areas of overlap with Baptist thought, but rather on the challenges Bart might present to Baptists. What will be more interesting and in the end more fruitful for Baptist theology and thought, I believe, is to read Bart as an amenable but also critical partner in dialogue from outside of the Baptist tradition, challenging Baptists to think carefully about their own tradition. The great benefit of reading Bart then is what his work provides is that his work provides a quiet and reflective place to stand outside of the fray that is, as Alistair McIntyre says, a socially embodied and historically extended argument, or in a word, a tradition. And in this case, an extended argument that is the Baptist tradition. By standing outside of the tradition, particularly that within this country, Bart provides a particular kind of objectivity, not a naively construed neutral standpoint, but an alternative point from which to view the Baptist tradition and its conflicts. Bart may thus serve as a disinterested correspondent to a foreign country and, at times, a foreign war. Bart's own theological context provides a template that perhaps could distort but might, might better illuminate the field of Baptist life and that may help to organize the disagreements into different configurations for the purpose of envisioning other possibilities for ways ahead. Such, I would argue, is one of the greatest gifts of a comparative historical theology. Such is also the proposal for a larger project. Today I will focus on but one aspect of it. It begins with a recognition that Bart's theology provides a hill on which to stand and survey from a distance both large and small skirmishes over the identity of what makes Baptists who and what they are. But before climbing up the hill, one last comment on Bart's affinity to Baptist thought. I have often thought that if a truly great Baptist theologian emerged and produced a massive systematic theology that was widely recognized as of enduring importance across traditions, such a work would look very much in formal ordering and shape, if not in every material commitment or detail, to Bart's church dogmatics. In Bart, we see a truly unparalleled focus upon Jesus Christ, a truly Christocentric theology at work, with a firm commitment to Holy Scripture as the unparalleled authority for the church's faith and confession, and with an emphasis upon proclamation and preaching as central to the church's worship and practice, all within a theology dedicated in service to the church. Bart's unquestionable commitment to Christ as the beginning and end of all the ways and works of God with humanity, his untiring avowal of the superiority and unrivaled authority of worldly scripture for the doctrine and practice of the church, and his unapologetic emphasis upon proclamation as the heart of the church's worship and life, all of these capture well convictions that Baptists share. I want to explore Bart's doctrine of the word of God in this threefold form of Christ and scripture and proclamation in light of his discussion of authority and authorities within the church. This doctrine presents a challenge to Baptist thought and practice. For while Bart and Baptists share much in their verbal commitments to these things, Bart provides a detailed theological investigation of their interrelation that Baptists often leave unexplored. Moreover, where Baptists often make statements of opposition and mutual exclusion, for example, pitting the Bible and tradition against one another, or where an emphasis upon the dignity of the believer seems to preclude a high doctrine of the church, 
leading often to a purely sociological and collective understanding of it, Bart places scripture and tradition in a dialectic of irreversible order and yet real relation in which the superiority of scripture is unquestionably affirmed, but where sola scriptura never devolves into nuda scriptura or sol scriptura, and where these are joined to a high ecclesiology. In other words, Bart is ever aware that there is no such thing as a reader of scripture on his or her own, and there is never a reader of scripture all alone. It may look that way, but looks can be deceiving. To begin, Bart's understanding of scripture developed over time, but most fully articulated in the first volume of the church dogmatics is set between an understanding of Christ and that of the church's own proclamation. Scripture is thus the bridge between Christ and the church, and for Bard, it is the recognition of this bridge that makes Protestantism, Protestantism what it is, the recognition of Christ's proper and true lordship over and not only within the church. Bard could expound upon the Protestant scripture principle of the reformers, which he interpreted to understand all other authorities, in which he could define already in 1923 in this way, quote, the church recognizes the rule of its proclamation solely in the word of God and finds the word of God solely in Holy Scripture, unquote. Because the revelation of God in Christ was unique and could never be directly identified with or subsumed into the teaching of the church, just as this stood in analogous fashion to how the divinity and the humanity of Christ could not be directly identified, so scripture was needed as the means by which the voice of Christ was mediated to the church. For this reason, all church proclamation, as well as all church tradition, whether comprised of doctrine, creeds, or confessions, must be based upon scripture, which stands over them. In Catholicism, on the other hand, Bart maintained no such bridge is needed, for the church flows out from the incarnation as the extension of revelation and is itself the bridge to the present moment. It is not, Bart maintains, that Protestants have scripture and Catholics have scripture and tradition, though in some conversations he could put it that crassly. No, Protestants too recognize with scripture a confessional history, that is to say, church tradition. But the understanding of the relation between scripture and tradition differs greatly for Catholics and Protestants, according to Bart. The groundwork for the formal and systematic exposition of Barth's nuanced understanding of the relation between scripture and tradition in the dogmatics is already laid in the mid-1920s. But surprisingly, not so much in reflection upon Roman Catholicism, but in relation to Lutheranism. Barth would not turn to Roman Catholicism in detail until the later 1920s. In other words, and this is important against those who see Bart as simply setting his theology as a foil against Catholic conceptions, Bart's understanding of tradition and the place of confession specifically was worked out in a comparison of the Reformed understanding of confessions with Lutheranism. In a brilliant set of lectures of 1923, to which I simply cannot do justice here, Bart states that the Lutheran understanding of its Augsburg confession saw it as a historic restatement of an ecumenical faith akin to the ancient creeds. The Augsburg Confession was thus understood within Lutheranism as a single and final articulation of Christian faith, incumbent upon others for subscription, such that it could not be changed or replaced. Thus, it takes the character of a symbol, which the formula of Concord describes explicitly as our creed for this age. 
Bart states that while the formula of Concord tries to preserve the distinction between Holy Scripture and all other writings, with regard to the Augsburg Confession, this distinction gets blurred. Thus, the formula of Concord can judge which positions are correct by whether they agree with, quote, God's word and the Christian Augsburg Confession, unquote, placing these in parallel apposition, which, Bartavers dangerously confers the authority of the former to the latter, such that it moves fundamentally into remarkable proximity to Holy Scripture. And so then Bart asks, Is there for the Lutheranism of the formula of Concord a basic and legitimate freedom to call upon this highest authority, the scripture, without reference to or even against the Augustana, that is the Augsburg Confession? Is the church itself fundamentally willing to review the question whether the understanding of scripture preserved in the Augustana is the correct one? That would be, I think, the persuasive proof that the brilliant distinction between the Bible and all other documents is understood to be a fundamentally qualitative one and not merely a quantitative one. Barth then asks about lower-level Lutheran confessions that serve to interpret in turn the Augustana. Do they share in its authority? Further, can the Augustana be appealed to without reference to or even against the understanding of it in these documents? Is there a basic openness to revisit their interpretation of the Augustana? If there is not, then do they not also participate in that dignity which is ascribed to Augustana itself as drawn from the word of God, if at a somewhat lower level? It seems to me that Bard has his finger on a hermeneutical problem that those who insist upon the need for creeds to interpret scripture often ignore, namely that the hermeneutical problem goes all the way down. In other words, there must be tradition to interpret tradition, and where does the chain of authority end? We may as well end by beginning with the recognition that Scripture does, in one sense, stand alone and over against all later tradition. But in the end, Bart concludes that this recognition is foreign to the Lutheran understanding of its own tradition. In light of the ascription of even inspiration by later Lutheran thinkers to the Book of Concord, in which the primary author of it is said to be no human but the Holy Spirit himself, Bart concludes that the difference between Holy Scripture and the Augsburg Confession is only a quantitative one and not qualitative. Bart then turns to consider the Reformed tradition. The Reformed tradition and understanding of confessions, Bart asserts, is entirely otherwise. The Reformed, whether consciously or unconsciously, recognized that the time of the Roman Empire and an imperial church was over, and with the passing of the Corpus Christianum, the time of a universal enforced confession had passed. The universality of the church was not to be sought in a return to a past uniformity, but in the future. As Barth states, this universality is not something given, but something sought. Reformed confessions were thus intentionally modest in scope and in intent. Bart concludes, such a particular confessing church sought to prove and defend the truth of its confession solely through its connection to Holy Scripture and not through its formal connection to a universal church or a normative exposition of Scripture. And it was such churches that on Reformed ground were the bearers of hope for an ecumenically recognized confession. The Reformed held to that hope as firmly as they held to the confessions of the first centuries. The legitimate pathway to universality is here the pathway of particularity, unquote. In other words, for the Reformed, and this is the road Bart himself would take, ecumenism travels from the bottom up. 
not the top down, but it does travel and it should. Barth then states that for the reform there is, was not a single confession, but many, and that they had no desire to create a single and final confession for all churches, so that a certain self-confident, if not defiant, assertion of one's own approach is connected here in an unusual way with an equally confident respect for other approaches. Contrary to the Lutheran conviction that a united symbol to which all must subscribe was a precondition for church unity, the reform did not see things this way. Rather, as Bart writes, quote, that which is required above all else is that the doctrine of the church everywhere and constantly be grounded upon Holy Scripture, which defines not its confessional unity, but the confessional freedom of the particular churches in their relationship to each other. Bart then wryly notes that it was precisely this diversity and lack of concern for human uniformity that led Luther to think that the doctrine of these reformed opponents from the Alps was from Satan. Now, agreement among the reformed, when found between confessions, was of course celebrated. Quote, such agreements, however, did not descend somehow from above, from some kind of central coordinating agency, nor were they in agreement on the letter, but of the spirit and of matter, unquote. To summarize a large swath of Barth's discussion, the confessions in the Reformed tradition were seen not as one, but many, not universal, but local, not symbols, but precisely what they were called confessions, and thus not final, but provisional, not parallel to Scripture in apposition, but always subordinate to Scripture in reality and in description, and thus always open to correction and revision in the light of Scripture, but also in light of discussions with other Christians. They are not ever described as inspired or the work of the Spirit, but very human documents which themselves acknowledge their own capability of error. And here, interestingly, Bart says the only exception to this is the Westminster Confession. Scripture and confession thus differ qualitatively. For what is revealed must not be confused with what one confesses, for revelation comes from above and confession comes from below. As Bart can say, Quote, the Reformed Confession is, to be sure, a very particular house, but a house whose doors and windows are open in every direction. I must say that after I first read these lectures, I felt I had read the most Baptist articulation of confessions that may have ever been written. But if one were to draw the conclusion, based upon Barth's discussion of confessions here in 1923, that he is pitting scripture against confessions or tradition, such that the second is set aside and no authority is given to it, this would be a mistake, a misreading of Barth's highly dialectical and nuanced understanding of their relation. For besides his sustained critical engagement with the Lutheran tradition, Barth could take a swipe also at the other side of the Protestant spectrum and say curtly, quote, we need scarcely speak of the recklessness of the English Congregationalists, the independents, who have elevated to the level of principle the idea of freedom over against one's own ecclesial past, unquote. Perhaps this point is best translated in the words of one contemporary Baptist when he says, quote, Baptists have come to make a tradition of rejecting tradition, unquote. While Barth thoroughly relativizes the confessions, he did not empty them of all authority. To find Barth's understanding of their rightful authority, one must turn from the rough, though brilliant, lectures of 1923 to Barth's mature discussion of authority within the church dogmatics. There, Barth states that confessions are the record of the church's confessing its faith in a particular place and time. And to confess its faith in the present well, the church must pay attention to the confession of the church in the past. In other words, Barth has an important place for tradition. 
If Bart is careful never to equate scripture and tradition or even place them on the same plane, he is also very careful to speak of their inseparable relation. They exist in a secondary relation of unity, differentiation, and irreversible order and asymmetry as a reflection of the primary relation of revelation and humanity in the first form of the word of God, Jesus Christ, which itself is echoed in the second form of scripture and the third form of church proclamation. The relation of scripture and tradition is, however, further elucidated through a number of accompanying dialectical relations, the first being that between the church and the believer. Now, in one respect, <clears throat> Bart seems to prioritize the individual with relation to the word of God over against the church. Bart quite simply will not allow for an authority within the church to override the hearing of the word, even if this hearing is that of a single individual, and he can appeal to Luther positively as the quintessential example in this regard. But lest we take this authority of the word over the church to imply the supremacy of private judgment in all matters of faith, and in turn to see this as a disregard for the church, Bart points in another direction, seen essentially in the believer's acceptance of the canon as scripture itself. With regard to the acceptance of the biblical canon's contents and boundaries, Bart thus writes, quote, The individual in the church certainly cannot and ought not to accept it, that is the canon, as holy scripture just because the church does. He can and should himself be obedient only to Holy Scripture as it reveals itself to him and in that way forces itself upon him as it compels him to accept it. But he still has to remember that Scripture is the word of God for and to the church and that therefore it is only in the church that he can meaningfully and legitimately take up an attitude to Scripture. Whatever his private judgment may be, even his private judgment of faith, However much it may diverge, he must always listen to the church. The so far unaltered judgment of the church radically precedes as such the judgment of the individual, even if it is the judgment of quite a number of individuals who have to be reckoned with seriously in the church. Unquote. Here we see the intricate relationship in Bart's mind between revelation, scripture, and canon. But we also see the dialectical relationship between the church and the believer, the believer and the church. This relationship contains a real, though relative, authority for the tradition of the church in this instance, the church's recognition and acknowledgement of the canon, its contents and its boundaries. It is therefore not a capitulation to an external coercive authority in the church, but a trustful honoring and respect for the church's historic witness to the location of revelation when one recognizes scripture as scripture. As Bart writes, quote, it is where the church declares that it has found Holy Scripture that we have actually to expect Holy Scripture, unquote. This dialectical relation between Scripture and church is nothing other than the relation of Scripture and the church's tradition, comprised of its confession that it has heard the word of God and heard it in Holy Scripture, these books, this canon. This is the question of the canon a past confession and thus a part of the church's tradition, yet a confession that the church and the individual believer must reaffirm in the present, with a certain weight given to the church's decision of the past. And if we have a problem with this notion of tradition, it may be because we have not recognized that to listen to the church is not to listen to a magisterial authority above ourselves, but a true authority that is recognized in our openness to instruction and correction from others. 
after Bart has spent literally hundreds and hundreds of pages showing why scripture is unparalleled and superior and unique in its witness to God's revelation in Christ, he then turns the entire discussion around to consider the side of the church's response. And this response does have its own authority. In section 20, entitled Authority in the Church, Bart writes this opening thesis, quote, The church does not claim direct and absolute and material authority for itself, but for Holy Scripture as the Word of God. But actual obedience to the authoritative Word of God in Holy Scripture is objectively determined by the fact that those who in the church mutually confess an acceptance of the witness of Holy Scripture will be ready and willing to listen to one another in expounding and applying it. By the authority of Holy Scripture on which it is founded, authority in the church is restricted to an indirect, a relative, and a formal authority, unquote. Now, this thesis receives many, many pages of exposition from Bart, but I have time to draw attention to but a few things. Notice that listening begins with one another. This is no coercive authority from on high. Rather, it is a recognition of mutual instruction given to us by others within the church. If we can recognize this within our own community of faith, then beginning to listen to those in other Baptist communities should not be so difficult. And then we might extend the circle to listen to those in other Protestant traditions similar to our own, and then to those a bit further removed, and then to listen even to Catholic and Orthodox traditions as well. And finally, in recognizing, as Bart did, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, we might even listen to those from the past. Now make no mistake, None of these voices, those of our neighbors and friends that we worship with every Sunday, those of fellow Christians we work with but who belong to different communities and perhaps different traditions of faith and worship, those we hear represented in confessions of the past, none of these can or do rival the living voice of Christ and Holy Scripture. Christ and church stand in the end, as Bart states, in a definite and irreversible order, united but distinct. And so it is with the living voice of Christ found in Scripture and the church's tradition. But the hearing of this voice in Scripture is not isolated from hearing it in a community of faith which hears with us and expounds and instructs us in its meaning. In other words, we must recognize a third dialectic at work that accompanies that between Scripture and tradition and that of church and individual. And this third dialectic I'll call that between trust and dissent. This dialectic is another element of the question of authority within the church. As Bart maintains, there is a real authority that tradition possesses and a real authority of the church in relation to the individual. It is both a real and relative authority and Bart maintains can be briefly expressed. Quote, all that we will have to say about the authority of the church itself can be understood in light of the commandment in Exodus 20:12, honor thy father and thy mother, unquote. This verse encapsulates Bart's entire understanding of the real, though relative, authority of church tradition, and it is a verse that appears throughout his work. With its quotation, Bart means the following. The fifth commandment does stand in seeming tension to the first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yet, because this commandment is included within the ten, it must have its own place. Certainly, there can be no conflict with the first commandment. It cannot contradict the first commandment, but neither is it abrogated by it. In its own sphere and when qualified by the first, it has its own dignity and authority. 
As the relation between the commandments go, so goes the relation between Christ and the church, scripture and tradition. Bart puts it this way, quote, Under the word, and therefore under holy scripture, the church does have and exercises genuine authority. It has and exercises it by being obedient, concretely obedient, by claiming for itself not a direct but only immediate authority, not a material but a former, not an absolute but a relative. It has and exercises it by refraining from any direct appeal to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in support of its words and attitudes and decisions, by not trying to speak out as though it were infallible and final, but by subordinating itself to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in the form in which Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is actually present and gracious to it, that is, in his attestation by the prophets and the apostles, in the differentiation from its own witness conditioned by its written nature. It is in this way, in this concrete subordination to the word of God, that it has and exercises genuine authority, unquote. Now, having heard such a strong qualification of the authority of the church and its tradition, one might be tempted to simply dismiss it. And one might be especially so tempted in light of the necessity at times to dissent, dissent against a misuse of the word of God to emphasize that one must obey God rather than men or women. Bart does not deny such a place for dissent. He is a Protestant after all. The word may need to be held by one or few against the church and not only held within it. Yet the dialectical nature of the relation between church and individual is paralleled also in a dialectic of trust and dissent. And for Barth, the occasional nature of the second should not overshadow the regular practice of the former. And here I quote Barth at length because I think this is a very important quotation. Quote, Therefore, in what I hear as the confession of the church, I will certainly have to reckon with the possibility of falsehood and error. I cannot safely hear the voice of the church without also hearing the infallible word of God himself. Yet this thought will not be my first thought about the church and its confession, but a necessarily inserted corrective. My first thought in this respect can and must be a thought of trust and respect, which I cannot perhaps have for the men as such who constitute the church, but which I cannot refuse to the word of God by which it lives and Jesus Christ who rules it. How can I know Jesus Christ as the Lord who has called me by his word if in relation to the rest of the church I do not start from the thought that despite and in all the sin of the men who constitute it, it too has been called and ruled by the same word. Because my sins are forgiven me, I am bold to believe and in spite of the sin of which I am conscious to confess my faith as created in me by the word of Christ. And if this is the case, then in relation to the rest of the church and its confession, I cannot possibly begin with mistrust and rejection just as in relation to our parents, no matter who they are or what they are like. We do not begin with mistrust and rejection or with the assertion that we must obey God rather than man. That would have never worked with my father, by the way. But with trust and respect, and therefore in the limits appointed to them as men, with obedience. As in and with the confession of the church, I hear the infallible word of God. I have to reckon first and above all with the lordship of Jesus Christ in his church and the forgiveness of sins, which is operative in the church not with sin and therefore with the possibility of falsehood and error which it involves. 
And this means that I have not primarily to criticize the confession of the church as it confronts me, as the confession of those who were before me in the church and are with me in the church. There will always be time and occasion for criticism. My first duty is to love and respect it as the witness of my fathers and brothers. And it is in the superiority posited by this fact that I shall hear it. And as I do so, as I recognize the superiority of the church before and beside me, it is to me an authority. Dissent needs, unquote, dissent needs to be done at times and done boldly. But dissent is always a stance of tragic, if necessary, conviction, not a prideful position. Just as refusing the advice of our parents and acting against their wishes is not the norm, but a sad situation that displays that trust has been broken, and it is never to be done lightly. There is a respectful listening to our parents that may entail a mature judgment that having listened, we in our own place, our own time, must go our own way. There is another kind of relationship that shows no such respect at all. As Christians, we stand in relation to one another, and our general attitude to others in the church, whether present or past, must be one of trust that can turn only to dissent, where the honor we would give our parents would cause us directly to disobey the first commandment. Having surveyed, though briefly, Bart's nuanced understanding of the relationship between Holy Scripture and the church and its tradition, between the individual and the corporate community, and between trust and dissent, one sees that Bart is unsatisfied with simple oppositional statements, but places seeming opposites into ordered relations that are richly narrated and contextualized. In the case of Scripture and tradition, this relation is marked by a unity, differentiation, and a strict and irreversible ordering. In the case of human responses to revelation, seen in the relationship of the community and the individual believer and that of trust versus dissent, Bart seeks to maintain the integrity of the latter term within the pairs while establishing its meaning and significance in the larger contextual framework of the former term. In other words, individuals retain an irreducible and inviolable integrity, but not an absolute autonomy when seen in the context of the church and dissent finds a necessary place, but only within a larger context of trust. In light of these thick descriptions, Baptists may be helped by Bart to think theologically of the relation between scripture and tradition, Bible and creed, individual and community, in ways that go well beyond the preservation of slogans. Bart, I think, challenges us as Baptists to explicate carefully, in light of sustained and concentrated theological attention, what so oftentimes we simply take for granted. What Baptists sometimes see as dualities, Bart sees as realities in ordered relationships. Baptists might learn to see confessions and even the classic creeds not as timeless documents to be used to enforce conformity, but nevertheless as having a relative prescriptive value when understood in light of Bart's injunction to honor our fathers and our mothers. In other words, oppositions of descriptive versus prescriptive understandings of confessions may themselves be too simple. Where Bart, therefore, seems to challenge Baptists most in this regard is where they choose one side of the opposition against the other, namely, scripture against tradition, the individual against the community, dissent is more central than trust. Despite discomfort, Baptists might be better served by at least contemplating his challenge rather than simply dismissing Bart as a foreign interloper. 
Bart's rejection of anything that smacked of a context-less reading of scripture, of religious individualism, or dismissive parochialism that enshrined contentiousness for its own sake may challenge Baptist thought. But at their best, Baptists themselves have understood that scripture is read among a company of the faithful in a setting of love and trust. This is also why Baptists have written and read and given relative authority to Bible commentaries and rarely questioned this practice. Though Bible commentaries are themselves nothing but an engaged conversation about the exegesis and interpretation of Scripture. And as Bart says, theology is nothing else than the history of exegesis, which itself is but another word of saying tradition. Confessions are thus themselves nothing but commentaries on Scripture, and their value is not weakened simply because they were written by churches rather than individual members of the SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature. Let no one mistake what I am arguing here. I'm not saying that only Bart has thought carefully about such things or that the challenge from Bart to Baptist goes in only one direction, though as Bart has said, listening must precede criticism. Nor am I arguing that the particular doctrinal and material positions he takes be simply embraced. No. But I do think that he provides us with a unique and valuable voice. He sees a real authority in confessions, but does not see them as absolute or or neither does he espouse forced subscription. He upholds the uniqueness of scripture against all creeds and confessions, but does recognize a real authority in them and refuses to ground Christian faith in personal experience. And he attempts attempts to engage the entire Christian tradition in a way that speaks to the entire church, but does so as one firmly committed to the Protestant tradition and its convictions. In other words, Bart provides numerous areas of amenability to Baptist sensibilities, but is not easily mapped onto current Baptist configurations, and that itself makes him worthy of study. The current Bart Renaissance in America demonstrates that a growing number of people think so, including a contingent of younger Baptists. I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I will prophesy anyway. I believe that as the distance between our time and the 20th century grows greater, Bart's star will shine brighter among the constellation of theologians, 20th century theologians. I think there are a number of reasons for this, but let me name just one. In the end, Bart was a theologian's theologian, attempting to re-narrate the Christian faith in a manner and on a scale similar to what Aquinas attempted in the Middle Ages. Bart, though deeply involved with the issues of his time, undertook a dogmatic task that consumed the latter half of his life. There is thus a reason why some, not all, young Baptists are intrigued with Bart's theology. Here we find articulated a description of the Christian universe that bears weight. It rejects the cultural pessimism and theological triumphalism of fundamentalism, as well as the cultural accommodation and theological subjectivism of liberalism. It recognizes the contextual nature of theology, including confessions, but does not dissolve theological truth into contextual relativism or human subjectivity. It does this while trying to articulate a truly Protestant vision for theology, recognizing both the indebtedness any true theology must have to the church's entire past, while maintaining that the Protestant vision still has a vital contribution to make to the church at large. It thus provides a theological and intellectual structure for those who are hopelessly Protestant to live in and may provide a resource for those who are loyally Baptist. I recognize that some might believe that the Reformation is over and that all that is left is for us to unlearn Protestantism. But I would argue that it is difficult to unlearn what one never really grasped. If the Protestant Reformation is to end, it will not be a good end if it comes to an end simply out of ignorance of its importance rather than because its true concerns have been met, answered, and preserved. 
In the end, BART may help Baptists not to lose their identity, but to find it in becoming even better Baptists, and in turn, better Christians, especially in regard to the unique gifts Baptists bring the larger Christian community. Baptists rightfully speak unabashedly of the priesthood of believers, but at their best, they have always recognized that you cannot be a priest by yourself. Certainly, each person can boldly approach the throne of grace. That is not the question. It is rather that the idea of an autonomous priest is a contradiction in terms. To be a priest is to be an intercessor. And to be a priest, you need someone to intercede for. And we are called to intercede for each other and together to intercede for the world. Many of you may be wondering how such a lecture can have anything to do with honoring the intentions of its endowment, namely as a lecture in practical Christianity. But I wonder if this does not call into question not the lecture but our estimation of what is practical. For if Baptists are to serve in a substantial way the kingdom of God in coming decades, then our churches simply cannot turn within themselves and attempt singular self-preservation through pragmatic marketing strategies. That temptation is enormous. And as a pastor who is often disillusioned with trends in larger Baptist life, I should know. Yet if Baptists are to present their theology as a house in which to live, and not simply a specialty shop to visit for one or two doctrines, then they must themselves consider again serious constructive work. Bart provides a model for how this might be done. And he might provide very practical assistance for Christian existence today in reminding Baptists that protection against captivity to the spirit of an age is best given by attention to different ages. For to ignore the history of the interpretation of scripture is to become captive precisely to the current unspoken cultural presuppositions which are present if unacknowledged and unconscious to every individual. Tradition is for Bart, ironically, the means by which we can read the Bible freely. For it is in the examination of the past that the parochialism of our own current commitments are exposed and revealed. Such as not to capitulate to a relativism of the immediate or to subjugate the present hearing of the word to the church's confession of the past, but it is to recognize that all confession, conscious or not, is always not only a word to culture, but one that is shaped, if only passively, by culture itself. And in this relation to a cultural picture of ourselves, Bart might be the most useful in challenging our own cherished concept of freedom itself. Bart's Protestant sensibilities and convictions were rooted in a doctrine of freedom. In fact, Bart could say at the end of one of his theses, in the reality of the incarnation in this event, God proves that he is free to be our God. But this freedom of which Bart speaks was not first a political or a social or a cultural one. Indeed, Bart could speak of freedom for the churches behind the Iron Curtain to the consternation and confusion of American theologians, perhaps most famously Reinhold Niebuhr. Bart could do so because while political and religious freedom were very good things, they were and remained secondary to the freedom of the word of God. And because Bart's understanding of freedom was always rooted in the freedom of God, and not the human person, and because it was so deeply woven into a thick description of the actuality and reality of God, it was always safeguarded against those who would turn freedom into individual license or worse, a sedative for churches living in a free state. Such perversions of freedom were seen clearly by Bart long before they became the focus of fiction. For if there is a commentary on freedom today in our culture, and an iconic representation of it, it is certainly the novel by Jonathan Franzen, simply entitled Freedom, a portrayal of the modern concept of freedom as the uninhibited cons consummation of every natural desire 
that in the end leaves the self corrupted and alone. To recognize this for what it is as but a new form of captivity requires that one know what true freedom is, which in turn allows us to know precisely what form of dissent is needed, and also what kind of prophetic word need be spoken. In an interview with Newsweek magazine in 1962, Bart was asked regarding his thoughts on the greatest failure of contemporary Protestantism. How shall I formulate it, he asked himself. The true thing in the original Protestantism was God's word to man, and then man's response to it. Modern Protestantism has lost its character as a response. If Protestantism is only a fight for individual liberties, freedom of the soul, then it has lost its cause. Man is left alone with himself, unquote. This year, 2012, marks the 50th anniversary of Bart's one and only visit to America. It was the coming together of a theologian of freedom with a land that prided itself and was so shaped by religious and political liberty. Bart had the following to say at the end of a talk in that quintessential American city, Chicago. And this is the last. Quote, now a concluding word. If I myself were an American citizen and a Christian and a theologian, then I would try to elaborate a theology of freedom. A theology of freedom from, let us say, from any inferiority complex over against good old Europe from whence you all came or your fathers. You do not need to have such an inferiority complex. That is what I learned these weeks. You may also have the freedom from a superiority complex, let us say, over against Asia and Africa. That's a complex without reason. Then I may add, your theology should also be marked by freedom from fear of communism, Russia, inevitable nuclear warfare, and generally speaking, from all the aforementioned principalities and powers. Freedom for which you would stand would be the freedom for, I like to say a single word, humanity. Being an American theologian, I would then look at the Statue of Liberty in the New York Harbor. I have not seen that lady except in pictures. Next week I shall see her in person. That lady needs a little or perhaps a good bit of demythologization. Nevertheless, maybe she may also be seen and interpreted and understood as a symbol of a true theology, not of liberty, but of freedom. Well, it would be necessarily a theology of freedom, of that freedom to which the Son frees us, and which, as his gift, is the one real human freedom. My last question for this evening is this. Will such a specific American theology one day arise? I hope so, unquote. I hope so, too. May we all. Thank you very much.